Hey, it's Julio Ricardo Varela of Latino Rebels Radio. And we're still on a break, just one more week before we get back at it next week. So in the meantime, as you know, if you're a fan of the show, Oscar Fernandez, who is the producer and host of the Latino Media Collective, who also produces Latino Rebels Radio, you know, he will, he'll tell me like, hey, I got another Latino Media Collective show. And I'm like, yeah, let's play it on Latino Rebels Radio because you've been doing it for several years as sort of the guest host of the show. So if you follow this podcast, you know we did the first part of this conversation with Professor Jorge Cuellar on the shadow of Roberto Dobison, who's the godfather of El Salvador's death squads. So there's a part one to this conversation that's on the podcast feed, right? So today we're going to feature part two of the conversation that Oscar had with Professor Cuellar on the Latino Media Collective. So part two discusses how certain aspects of Dobison's legacy run parallel to the current administration of Nayib Bukele, who's the current president of El Salvador. So Jorge has been on the show, not only on the Latino Media Collective, but he's also been on Latino Rebels Radio. He's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. So, yeah, part two of The Shadow of Dobison on the Latino Media Collective, Oscar Fernandez. Take it away, Latino Rebels radio producer, but also producer and host of the Latino Media Collective on Latino Rebels Radio. Okay, over to you, Oscar, and the music. Thank you. 
Greetings, greetings, greetings. Y bienvenidos a todos mi gente escuchando en Washington and all points beyond. This is Oscar Fernandez and you're listening to the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. El Distrito Colombia here on this Friday, August 12, 2022. You can also hear us on latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez. And today on the show, we put the spotlight on El Salvador for part two of a special episode on the shadow of Roberto Dobison, former Salvadoran assemblyman during the 80s, the founder of the right wing arena party, the godfather of the death squads during the Civil War, and one can argue El Salvador's Hitler. And to discuss this second part, we're joined once again by Jorge Cuellar, who's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. He joins us today via Skype. Welcome back to the show, Jorge Cuellar. Hey, Oscar. Nice to be back. Uh, I'm really, I'm really happy, uh, you know, that the, that the first part of this uh, Dabuson show did well. I'm really excited to deepen that analysis, you know, and, and start thinking more directly about how, how Dabuso connects to the present Bukele administration. Absolutely. And let me also reiterate as well, you know, to say thank you to everyone who gave us a positive reception from the last episode we did on Dabuson as well, because there's just so much that we didn't get to in the first episode that we had to do it twice. And so the last time you and I spoke, we ended in 1992. A very important year in Salvadoran history. That was the year that the uh, peace accords were signed. And this was also about just a few weeks after the peace accords were signed that Dobison had passed away. He passed away from lung cancer, I believe. And so this is where we sort of pick up. But, you know, there's sort of other things that will take us in many directions with regards to his influence even today, as Jorge just mentioned. So prior to his death, what was Dobison's position on the peace accords in El Salvador during this time period in the early 90s? I know that um, even Jose Napoleon Duarte had passed away two years prior to this. So quite a little bit of, to some degree, poetic justice here. But what was his position at the time during this very crucial and sensitive period in Salvadoran history? At this point, before Dobison passes away, before the peace accords are signed in 92, He's still he's still clinging to this version of historical events that El Salvador is falling to, uh, you know, the communist scourge. And so he's still holding out that, you know, the conflict will continue and that, you know, this these peace accords, you know, are, are basically a truce to end the conflict that from his position looks like a really kind of weak, a weak solution. For him, the only real and thorough comprehensive resolution to the conflict was the elimination of the FMLN forces at that time and, uh, and their, their total annihilation. So I think he perceived the peace accords as, as something, of a, you know, something of a failure um, because they couldn't succeed in that initial you know, objective of, of getting rid of the leftist uh, and communist presence in the country. Let's not also forget to mention the fact that around late 91 was the uh, the fall of the Soviet Union at that time. So 
as you just said, that his argument sort of became weaker and weaker as the peace accords continued to develop. And it just goes to show you in some way that, you know, the whole fear and paranoia that fascists like Dobison express had nothing to do with communism per se, but rather than to, you know, sort of eliminate whoever he thought were dissidents or resistance to his vision of El Salvador. So as we said in our last conversation, that there are plenty of other, you know, bad actors and interesting characters that we could easily do one hour shows on in and of itself. One of them I mentioned was Jose Napoleon Duarte, who was president of El Salvador during its most genocidal and darkest periods in the early 80s. Another one is Alfredo Cristiani. And I mention him right now is because I think it was about two or three months ago that a court ordered him to be arrested in connection to the Jesuit murders of 1989. So this sort of leads me to the question here is, uh, what was Dobison's sort of working relationship with these two other important figures in Salvadoran history, two figures who've been linked as well to some of the darkest moments in Salvadoran history. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, Duarte, I'll start with Duarte. I mean, he, he, was, uh, he was supposed to be a kind of, you know, uh, a kind of middle-of-the-road candidate uh, during the war, and he wasn't supposed to, you know, it wasn't supposed to get worse. He was supposed to be a kind of conciliation president. Um, and it seemed to me that, that that it really failed because of the other forces in the country at that time, right? He was of the Christian Democrat Party. So it was seen as a kind of, you know, sort of centrist approach to deal and rein in some of the most extremist violence of, of the war, right? But it actually, like, fell out of hand. It got out of hand. And like you, like you correctly mentioned, things got extremely bad. And that's when you have more of the... Uh, the kind of unfolding of the death squad dynamic. Dabuson becomes uh, also a, a more well-known presence in terms of managing a lot of the intelligence during the war. As we also know, um, Duarte defeats, right? Dabuson in, in 1984, they're running against one another, right? And so Dabuson, uh, you know, actually in some ways intensifies his, his intelligence gathering, his presence on national media, in terms of like uh, mentioning people who are communist sympathizers or leftist insurgents and people who are tied to the left in the country. And, you know, that's what it starts that dynamic that, you know, some folks actually mentioned in response to the part one of the show, which was that, you know, Dabuson developed that on screen persona that, you know, if he mentioned somebody's name, uh, the radio and TV program, that person who he named was, you know, dead a week or two later. Um, and so that dynamic really intensifies um, during the Duarte presidency, which was supposed to kind of rein in a lot of the violence, the extremism that was happening, of course. And so it seems to me that, uh, you know, Dabuson actually took his loss, his political loss, and just went for his true objective, right? Not being, you know, sort of uh, in any kind of uh, leadership position within the reigning government, and just went nuts, basically, it went nuts. So that's, that's sort of some of the, the connections there with Dabuson and during the Duarte presidency. But then, you know, that kind of reputation that Dabuson develops during the 1980s, and especially during the Duarte presidency, you know, makes him such an incendiary figure, right? That 
is a political dynamite essentially, even for a right wing that's already, you know, the, the right wing arena party that he founded um, already trying to think about some kind of conflict resolution to the struggle, given that the Salvadoran government was making no headway in actually beating off the FMLN, right? You know, famously, right, the end of the Salvadoran Civil War was a stalemate, essentially, right? And nobody really won over the other. And so that that kind of negotiated resolution was already kind of uh, writing on the wall in some sense, where politicians who, who were thinking about this um, for the last, you know, eight to nine years already could see that a figure like Dabuson, whose reputation was, uh, you know, so extreme, so violent, so of ill repute in terms of the kinds of acts that he engaged in um, throughout his, you know, political and intelligence career was not really a likely candidate for a political career after the end of the war. He was only, his role became so specific to the violence of the civil war that, you know, he would never transition in some ways to being a, a politician in the traditional sense, right? And that's where you have the emergence of a figure like Alfredo Cristiani, right? Who um, is seen to be as a kind of, again, from the Arena Party, a right-wing, uh, a, a right-wing guy who is very much, you know, indebted to uh, the project that Dabuson you know, sort of articulated in some of his techniques and the way he um, developed a kind of right-wing nationalism in El Salvador. But he's also much more closely linked to the traditional political classes of El Salvador as a businessman, right? Like in the 1990s, Cristiani becomes the kind of mediator to the Salvadoran um, agro export market with uh, as a representative of Monsanto, right? The transnational genetically modified seed company, right? That has all but taken over the world. But and so Cristiani is this kind of uh, pragmatic businessman that that is seen to be more of a competent politician that could traffic in these kind of right wing nationalisms, but not as uh, not in the style, so to speak, of Roberto Dabuson, who was so marked by the, you know, death squad stuff, by his reputation and being signaled actually by Duarte, right? He gets signaled by Duarte as being the guy who uh, who gave the order to assassinate uh, Monsignor Romero, right? And so his reputation uh, never really fully recovers from the 1980s. And so he's really he kind of becomes a dinosaur in his own lifetime, right? No longer useful for the political project of the right-wing Arena Party towards the end of the war and immediate aftermath. Your characterization of Cristiani as a businessman sort of segues into my next question here. Before today's conversation, you and I, for our correspondence, I mentioned to you that I was in Santa Ana, El Salvador last month, and I spent some time in San Salvador, the capital. And anyone who's gone there, especially in recent times, are probably aware of a lot of the American-style shopping malls that have populated, you know, the capital city. They're in various other parts in the country, but especially in the capital, I was taken to one of these. And one of these shopping malls had a monument of Dobison at the, I think it was at the exit or the entrance of this mall. And it really struck me, 
you know, hit me pretty hard because I thought to myself, oh, okay, now I see the motivations here behind a figure like Dalbison because in our last conversation, we spoke a lot about his heinous crimes and his fascist nature. Well, I wonder if you could talk to me about his beliefs as it pertains to economics, because when I saw this monument in one of the shopping malls over there, I thought to myself, you know what, that pretty much really shows both his economic motives behind his fascist nature, and also to a certain degree, or to a large degree, it shows that who is he at the service of at the end, because he was not at the service of the Salvadoran people during his lifetime. Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean that's a really interesting kind of image that you that you painted there, Oscar, of this this you know uh, statue of Davuson, um right near the, the the shopping center or the mall. You know, like I think that there's something uh, you know really grim about that, um, and and really also represents the politics of historical memory in El Salvador that you know are still being fought over. Like people have there um you know the the war creates a kind of fragmentation in in the salvadoran psyche that like uh causes one to you know have this patchwork of of, of different uh memory communities you know you do have at the same time the tributes and the statues to oscar romero the murals to oscar romero but in you know a few on the other side of the city right into salvador specifically then you have you know a statue to Dabuson or a plaque to Calderon Sol or a plaque to Cristiani or something like this, right? That that really shows this incredible and long-lasting division, right, uh, among the Salvadoran people of what the you know sort of really what the war was about and what was uh, what the what the struggle really was over. And so you know, like speaking directly to to what Dabuson's beliefs. Uh, were uh, related to economics. I mean, I believe that he had a kind of the logic of the finquero, you know, a kind of finca logic to El Salvador, where um, the kind of oligarchic political economy in the country, to him, was the essence of what made El Salvador such a such a great country. That there was this division between the working poor, the racialized working poor. And uh, a landed, you know, elite, landowning elite um, that was the productive part of the of the country that could that were the ones who were able to harness this unruly laboring mass, you know, of people and make and turn this country in a, into a productive plantation, effectively a finca, right? And so I I think he he fundamentally believed this that this kind of division of of wealth and income along, you know, class lines and often, you know, uh, racial lines, phenotypically, right? You have, you know, chelitos like him, you know, as part of the, uh, a kind of uh, uh, elite in the country um, was the natural order of things, you know? And that natural order of things was precisely what, um, you know, the Arena Party has often represented to the country, that the model of, you know, elite-led development was a good thing for the country uh, continues to be a good thing for the country. And so we should continue to, you know, deepen and renew that kind of uh, economy. So it seems to me that, you know, uh, Davuson was was very much a, a believer in that. 
And, uh, and he was also, as you, I mean, as you remember from all these broadcasts that he would do during the 1980s, like he, he, he was against unions, against peasant organizing, against, you know, students and, and, and organizing students, right? Against, uh, you know, he was against certain government officials who were in the public sector. He was against teachers, you know, academics too with, the, you know, uh, especially um, uh, the folks at uh, the UCA and the Universidad Nacional, the U.S. And so, you know, you have this kind of um, imaginary that, that, that Dabuson is operating under that speaks to it, that like really reflects exactly what he thought that was so valuable about um, El Salvador and about the way things are or the way things were, right? Or the way things continue to be in some sense and how he, and how he was defending that social order. Right. He was he his his role was uh, to defend the integrity of that social order that for so long has proved to be uh, effective, um, profitable. Right. And uh, and useful to uh, to a certain minority of the Salvadoran uh, people. Right. The, the 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 wealthy landholding elite. He, he he truly believed that, right? And that's very clear in the in the in the arena kind of ideology, in the imagery, and in the in the things that he would say, and the thing in the way that he would position himself, right, as this kind of like frontline defender for the traditional Salvadoran family, for the traditional you know Salvadoran uh, community, right, for all these kinds of things that implicitly. Uh, you know, we're dog whistling to uh, a wealthy um, land owning elite and uh, against social movements, against popular needs and against, you know, uh, a left wing that had, for all intents and purposes, garnered the, you know, hearts and minds and the support of the working people, which he had a clear antagonism for. Yeah, you know what? In a more perfect world, we would tear down monuments for people like Dobison and put up ones for Oscar Romero or Prudencia Ayala or Rufina Maya or Jose Simeon Cañas. People are more worthy of adoration. But instead, and for, we, for, and for, for Rutilio Grande, too. Let's not forget Rutilio. Yes, absolutely. So. Speaking of other people who don't deserve monuments, I wonder if you could draw parallels between Dobison and former Salvadoran dictator Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, who was the dictator of El Salvador back in the 1930s, because I mentioned at the beginning of the show that Dobison is El Salvador's equivalent to Hitler. I think a similar argument can be made of Hernandez Martinez. And I think the last time we had this discussion that Dobison himself even took a page or two from Hernandez Martinez, correct? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I think that, like, one of the things that Hernandez Martinez did, too, was, like, professionalize, you know, the Salvadoran military and formalize a lot of the rural police. Um, and, you know, that's one way, too, that uh, Dabuson was inspired by by that model, not only in the kind of fascistic, you know, ideals that we talked about in the last episode where where it's about his, uh, you know, sort of this view of like indigenous populations and campesino peoples as being kind of in the way of the greatness of the country, right? Of the economic development and the modernization of the country that, of course, uh, uh, you know, as we established last time, 
that was so you know profoundly believed but he like in terms of just the kind of mechanics of the way hernandez martinez operated in terms of you know uh, uh, uh developing rural police forces and formalizing them centralizing them right um this is really great book uh, called authoritarian el salvador um by eric ching that really details that that whole like process of of, of how of how hernandez martinez centralized a lot of the you know social control mechanisms and the policing mechanisms of the country that was on you know again also takes a page out of that book in terms of like developing uh, uh, death squads in the countryside against gathering intelligence in innovative ways at the time of course and this is all you know funded by the CIA uh, and all this kind of stuff in El Salvador but he's very he's very much you know taking a page out of that book in terms of like attempting to centralize intelligence gathering you know, in his person. So then he's able to be this kind of mouthpiece, right, for for calling out the violences and the crimes uh, of the left wing, of the radicals, of the insurgents, right? And, and uh, all with this kind of infrastructure that, um, I mean, he doesn't lay it out on his own, of course, but he becomes the kind of representative of it all um, that that becomes the, the, the kind of... Uh, cradle right the cradle for death squad activity during the war um and so that kind of like you know sort of um military intelligence gathering that that he's known for um that yields the death squads was very much something that i imagine he was he was thinking alongside with um the work you know the work of hernandez martinez back in the you know 30s 40s and 50s um but uh you know there's even there's even a death squad during during the civil war that's called you know the maximiliano hernandez martinez brigade right yeah. um which which just you know directly exciting that moment of authoritarian military authoritarianism in el salvador the kind of you know genocidal logic of that military all those military regimes and the kind of you know desire for social extermination of certain dissident elements of the Salvadoran population, right? Which in that time was campesino organizers, and actually in, in many cases it's also campesinos um, in in the 1980s. But but you can see this kind of like you know citational practice, right, among these right wing figures that are are acknowledging. Um, the uh, people like Hernandez Martinez, right, are being acknowledged as kind of forerunners or, or ancestors to contemporary right-wing thought and right-wing activity and uh, extrajudicial activity, right? And this kind of, this kind of view that um, sometimes you need to do what it takes to get the job done, regardless of law, regardless of you know, um, uh, recognition of human rights, regardless of all of that, right? Sometimes you need to do dirty work. And and that's another way that, uh, you know, Hernandez Martinez is cited by Dabuson because of the way that Hernandez Martinez centralized all power in his person and basically became the law, right? So that he could um, do do as he, as he wished in engaging in social extermination campaigns, in stomping uh, the um, uh, social movements and, and, and unionizing amongst campesinos and urban laborers, right? All this kind of stuff. And, uh, and so all that, all those antecedents are kind of laid out um, across those military regimes of which, you know, Hernandez Martinez is one of the most visible, you know, dictators of that period uh, for El Salvador. 
and that was when clearly is, uh, you know, got his citational practice, uh, in check with that. And so he, he, he's clearly inspired by that moment. Um, and so are the, the men who are part of, you know, the white warriors union or, you know, the union Guerrera Blanca of which Davison was a part, the, you know, that all the anti-communist commands and brigades, um, and the Maximiliano Hernandez Martinez, uh, Brigada, you know, that was clearly, you know, they were, they were trying to show some kind of respect to that period. We're going to take a break right here, but before we do, I want to say that I think it's well documented at this point that Hernandez Martinez was an admirer of Hitler and Mussolini during this time period. And, his most heinous crime, La Matanza of 1932, actually predates World War II as well, just uh, as food for thought. So we're speaking with Jorge Cuellar. He is an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. We're speaking about the shadow of Dobison Part 2. This is the Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Back with more in a minute. Stay tuned. Cristo al servicio de quien preguntaba ay mi obrero preguntaba ay mi obrero al servicio de unos pocos que se lo llevaron preso disfrazándolo con lujos sabiendo que él es del pueblo lo tienen encarcelado en palacios de concreto con pisos de puro mármol, de pura madera el techo, templos que no se parecen a las casas de mi pueblo. Casas de lata y cartón, techos rotos, tierra al suelo. Cristo al servicio de quién preguntaba, ay mi obrero, preguntaba, ay mi obrero. Cristo hay que liberarlo Él siempre quiso ser pueblo Y hoy lo explotan los de arriba Ricos, iglesia y gobierno Los señores de una iglesia Que está muy lejos del pueblo Que no sabe de miserias Que no vive su evangelio Y que no habla nuestro idioma Cuando nos dice silencio Son cosas que Dios permite, son cosas que manda el cielo. Cristo al servicio de quién preguntaba, ay mi obrero, preguntaba, ay mi obrero. A Cristo hay que liberarlo, me decía, ay mi obrero, porque ellos se lo han robado. Y Cristo, Cristo es del pueblo, iglesia que no denuncia la injusticia y la opresión. Es una iglesia vendida, queremos resurrección, queremos renovación, queremos revolución. Cristo al servicio de quién? That was Los What a Wow, and you're listening to Latino Media Collective here on WPFW 89.3 FM, Washington. Reminding everyone that you can also follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can also follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. 
Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez, and we're speaking about The Shadow of Roberto Dobison Part 2 with Jorge Cuellar, who's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. So let's tie this dark shadow of Roberto Dobison to more recent times. And we got a whole plethora of, (laughs) I guess you would say, million-dollar questions here. But the most obvious one is that, you know, in recent times, can you draw any parallels between Dovison and current Salvadoran president Nayib Bukele? Because, you know, I don't even know where to begin. There have been so many things that we could point to, especially in the last two years. But I want to get your opinion on this. I mean, yeah, Oscar, there's so many. And, and the guy and the guy Bukele, he keeps giving us more examples. Right. Uh I mean, one, uh, I'll, I'll offer three. The first being uh, the parliamentary coup or the self-coup in February 2020. You know, the other one being the way he has utilized social media in a, in a particular kind of way that echoes the, the media use of, of Roberto Davuson. And then, you know, and then the third being this kind of like, you know, historical revisionism that uh, that Bukele has practiced since the since the beginning of his political career, which is very similar to the way that Dabusun has reconstructed Salvadoran history to a certain kind of version of events that makes inevitable right this kind of right wing populism and this turn this kind of turn to military populism in El Salvador that was very much also part of Dabuson's, you know, political conclusions that he arrived at as well. But so go back so going back to the first one, yeah, that, you know, the coup in, in twenty twenty when Bukele storms the legislative assembly, right, and you know, strong arms uh, a legislative assembly that at that point isn't totally of his party yet, um, into approving a bill that goes goes with a loan for funding uh, the police and military in order to get them, you know, newer equipment, to buy them drones, to buy them all sorts of uh, all sorts of things. He strong arms the legislative assembly to approving this, and so he goes into the legislative assembly with a military attaché, so some soldiers with him in order to, you know, encourage them right to make the right decision and to proceed with approving this thing. Um, as quickly as possible, because God knows uh, the Salvadoran military and police are underfunded and um, under-equipped, right? And so he 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 succeeds in doing this. It create you know it creates a international uh, scandal. You know many many come out, academics, uh, watchdogs, human rights defenders, politicians all over the world, right? They come out and say that this is an attack on you know salvadoran institutionality and on democratic on democratic order right um and and, you know i come out at this time writing a whole piece saying that you know el salvador never had a democratic tradition to begin with so what really is happening um in this moment is is actually something that we've we've seen before right and what i was thinking about there right this kind of supposedly el salvador has a democracy i think i think it does it's however very fragile and very kind of it's a patchwork of democracy rather than, you know, really functioning institutional institutionality. But what I was thinking about in terms of my piece about this moment in, in Bukele's presidency 
is that, you know, he was acting like politicians past and other political figures past, like that was one, right? Which, you know, in 1979, after, you know, about that coup, right? Dabuson is a part of that he's trying to take over the state, right? He, there's precedence, right? There's precedence to Bukele that they're actually in the Dabuson events that occurred in his lifetime and that he was a part of, right? In terms of trying to take over the state and doing a coup against the junta. And he tries this a couple of times too, right? Different kinds of ways of interfering in the function of the state and, and trying to enter politics forcefully, Right, which is which is very much you know what 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 Davison has also been known for, right? That he used his popularity and his extremist rhetoric to position himself as like the inevitable choice in order to get things under control, right? And that's something that he learned from from one of his mentors, right, Jose Alberto Medrano, which we can also talk about as well. But yeah. but Bukele, you know, is he's he's echoing a lot of this where where there is this sense that if politics in Salvador is not delivering as quickly, as effectively the solutions that I think, you know, should come to be, come to pass, then I'm going to take full control of this, of this process and kind of hijack it using the power available to me. And that's something that Davoson was clearly known for, right? And, and that Bukele is also putting into practice by using his um, extreme popularity in El Salvador, right, to consolidate authoritarianism, to intimidate legislators, to dismiss court judges, to intimidate and, 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 and kind of criminalize journalists and just the general population right now, right, with the state of exception. But like it's these kinds of, uh, you know, political acts that Bukele now seems to do on the regular that um, were really techniques of, of kind of shocking the political system, right, that Dabuson was, was also doing in his time. So there's a, there's a kind of mirror there, I think. And then, you know, the other couple of things that I wanted to add is that, you know, the social media use of Bukele is very similar to the mastery over televisual media and radio during the war that Davuson was was totally you know known for. He was camera ready. The guy was camera ready all the time, right? His talking points were always so well developed and articulated, you know, like as if you know he had a team around him who you know he was uh, you know getting prepped to be on television for with you know a media team sort of. But he was very uh, media savvy, and I think that also contributed to this kind of mystique around Dabuson and a kind of magnetism around Dabuson because of the way he manipulated his image on, on media. Right. And the, yeah. And the way that he was like really able to leverage, you know, the cameras being on him because he's this, you know, incendiary guy, very radical and extremist kind of guy and really harness that attention to further augment, right. And amplify the attacks that, would then, you know, be carried out by by death squads and eliminating political opponents. You know, similarly, Bukele also is doing something similar, right, where he's using social media to go after opposition uh, persons, right, whether they be journalists, whether they be academics, whether they be just naysayers who are critical of, like, Bitcoin, for example, or, you know, utilizing troll farms 
um, of, of, of bots, right. Of paying, you know, folks to use bots, which are fake accounts on social media to dogpile, right. And to harass and intimidate opponents into silence, right. Into shutting them down. And so it's very similar. It's, you know, it's not to the level of death squads, right. In the way that, you know, Dabuson, um, practiced, but, you know, in terms of the kinds of, uh, you know, political objectives of the way that media is utilized by Dabuson and Bukele, there are, there are like, you know, just scary similarities, right? Where, you know, just this afternoon, I was going through my Twitter feed and I saw that, uh, you know, another, actually a descendant of the Dabuson family, a journalist for El Faro, Juan Martinez, was, uh, was Juan, being Juan attacked. Jose, Juan Jose Martinez Dabuson. Yeah, Juan Jose Martinez Dabuson was being harassed by Bukele, by Bukele's personal Twitter account for his research that he has, he done, he's done as, a, as both a journalist and an anthropologist, right? The ethnography that he's done um, with uh, gangs in El Salvador. And his work has been extremely useful in understanding, you know, the internal dynamics of how gangs operate in El Salvador. And so now Bukele is using this work to basically claim, right? that Martinez Dabuson is himself, uh, you know, affiliated with gangs, right? And so he's, he's producing this kind of criminalization of intellectual production. It's a deep kind of anti-intellectualism that Bukele is engaging in in order to shut down, right, a prominent critic and writer and academic analyst, right, of El Salvador and of the social problems of El Salvador. And so this is just, you know, just one instance this morning that, you know, Bukele engaged in that is very much echoing in this really frightening way, right? The way that he goes after individuals and harasses them um, in order to silence them effectively, which is not that far away with, from what, you know, Davuson did, right? In calling out people, in naming, you know, dissidents and, and radicals, in intellectuals, right, uh, such as the UCA professors, of course, you know, who, who were seen to be, you know, against the project of restoring El Salvador to its, you know, previous grandeur. Quote, unquote, previous grandeur. So thank you for crystallizing that million dollar question right now, the connection between Davison and Bukele, because, you know, to a certain degree, and I'm not saying this as a devil's advocate, but it is to a certain degree a little unfair to compare the two because Dabuison did, you know, live through and conduct a very genocidal period in El Salvador's history. And while there isn't a genocide right now to the same extent as it was in the 80s, Nayib Bukele is doing things that Dabuison wishes he could have done if he were in power. And I think that's also a main component to the comparisons, the parallels between these two individuals. And I'm also glad that you mentioned sort of this anti-history moment that we're living in Salvadoran history because this year is the 30th anniversary of the peace accords and it sort of came and went with almost little fanfare. And it's sort of shocking to me how it has come and gone with very little attention and just shows you sort of the generation gap between those such as you and I who remember that time period and the younger generation who, you know, I guess through lack of uh, funding through education have not, you know, grasped, you know, the seriousness of that time period as much as you and I would. So 
man, you know what? I hate to say it, but you know, this has the potential to be a part three episode here, but we're going to leave it as it is right now. So finally, you know, in light of recent undemocratic actions taken by the Bukele administration, especially the ones that you just mentioned, what can Salvadoran academics or people in other forms of leadership, such as you and I, do to remind people of the shadow of Dawison before history ends up repeating itself here? Wow, Oscar, man. So wait, we're we're almost done. We're at time. Wow, um, <laughs> you know, this is this is this is intense. Yeah. Uh, you know, like you know, I, I I forgot to mention. You know, these gang sweeps and the arbitrary detention, like. That's a kind of intelligence gathering that Bukele is also doing, which again is another echo to the way that Dabuson would capture folks, interrogate them, right? You know, this is where he, he became to be called Blowtorch Bob because of the use of, you know, fire in his interrogation techniques. You know, but like you 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 have all these different moments of echoes. But, yeah, you know, and to, this is something that Dabuson wishes he could have done during his lifetime as well. Exactly, exactly. So these kinds of roundups that Bukele is doing now, it's like, a, it's Dabuson's wet dream, so to speak, you know? But oh uh, uh, but what we're seeing today, you know, in terms of the kind of uh, turn, the anti-democratic turn that the Bukele administration has taken, you know, it's like, the thing about Salvadorans is that, you know, they're not going to take it lying down, right? And so there are movements, you know, the Prohibido Olvidar SV, which is a, a youth movement, you know, actually really not really youth, but everybody's included in that, in doing this kind of work of keeping the memory of remembering, you know, what the violence is of the civil war in order to prevent from this, from repeating itself, right? From getting into a situation wherein, you know, there's uh, these kinds of strongman figures who, you know, do exert their will over an entire population. Like, there are these kinds of communities out there, like, you know, just recently there's communities in the Bajo Lempa who, you know, rooted in this kind of 1980s moment of the Comunidades de Base, which were, you know, ecclesiastical groups that were, you know, fomented by, you know, campesino political consciousness and liberation theology are reactivating their potential in order to respond to Bukele's arbitrary detentions and are forcing the Bukele administration, you know, to pause in some sense, even if it is limited, these forms of resistance that, you know, communities are, are enacting, while they seem a little not as direct or as visible as perhaps a armed struggle and, a, you know, mass mobilization such as the FMLN in the 1980s, they do uh, demonstrate that Salvadorans are not accepting this in the way that, you know, folks on the outside perceive it to be, right, and that they're not in support of Bukele wholeheartedly, right, um, that they're um, they're pushing back, they're, you know, really reflecting on this reality and this kind of new conjuncture in the Salvador with Bukele at the helm, and they are actually, to me, that is leadership, right, that is the site of leadership from the grassroots, from the social movements um, in the Salvador that are really telling us the limitations of the Bukele project and the way that um, they're reactivating historical memory in order to make it useful, right? In order to make it a resource for contemporary political mobilization against authoritarianism. And so, like, it's, 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 already, it's already there, you know? And what we can do as folks on the outside, you know, observing this from, from the diaspora, is, is really to invite that, that conversation, to have a more critical take of Bukele, 
you know, taking into consideration those positions and, and those politics by these groups I mentioned and have this open debate about, you know, whether Bukele is the future of El Salvador and whether he should be, right? Because I think that there is even a, a kind of problem among the diaspora where, you know, there are a lot of people in the diaspora of different generations, right, that aren't uh, as critical as one would expect, right? And the reason there, um, there's two different reasons. One being the younger generations are literally unaware of the historical content of what makes Salvadoran, contemporary Salvadoran politics, right? Which is why we're talking about Davusan. And the second being the older generations, right, that are so jaded by the experiences of the war and, you know, the, uh, the ARENA FMLN electoral, you know, project in the 1990s and 2000s that now are also invested in Bukele as a kind of strongman figure to get us out, right, of that, you know, sort of uh, electoral stalemate, so to speak. So there's, there's work to be done across the generations by, you know, us in the sort of in the middle, so to speak, that, you know, can dialogue with both. And so what you're doing here with this project, you know, in highlighting Dabuson as this kind of, you know, important figure to remember, it's also a conversation for the older folks, you know, that need to be reminded again about this and to the younger folks who are hearing this for the first time. And so for the younger members of the diaspora here in the U.S. listening to us, this is why we do this show. So as history won't repeat itself. So we've been speaking with Jorge Cuellar. He's an assistant professor of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Dartmouth College in Hanover, New Hampshire. You know, Jorge, again, we could do another three or four hours on this, but in the meantime, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thank you very much for being on the show once again, Jorge Cuellar. Thanks so much, Oscar. It's a pleasure, man. And you know, aquí estamos para cualquier cosa. Let's keep the conversation going. Claro que sí. And with that said, that is it for today's show. We want to remind everyone that you can follow us on latinomediacollective.com. You can follow us on Twitter under the name at LMC underscore show. That is at LMC underscore show. And of course, live on WPFWFM.org. That's WPFWFM.org. Once again, this is Oscar Fernandez saying thank you very much, everyone, for listening to the show. That's it for today's show. Adios. Nos vemos. Ciao.